0: Last week, we began a new sermon series in the book of Colossians. And last week, we looked at chapter one and the supremacy of Christ in all things. And today, our message comes from Colossians chapter two. We'll begin in verse six and we'll go through verse 15. I'd like for us to read that together. And I invite you to follow along in your copy of God's word, or you can follow along on the screens as well. Again, this is Colossians. Chapter 2, verse 6. It says this So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We acknowledge that it is our authority that it tells us all we need to know about who you are, God, who we are in light of that and and how you would have us live. God, I thank you especially for this passage. And, And Jesus, I thank you that we can be made righteous by your works, not by our own, but that in Christ there is forgiveness of sins and there is a hope for the future in which we can have great confidence. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would bring this text to life in the hearts of our people, that you would use it to convict us, to encourage us, to give us a confidence of who we are in Christ. In your name we pray, amen.
1: Amen, thank you so much, Stephen, and thank you for being here. Thank you if you're in our overflow room and thank you for watching us online as well. So it was 15 years ago uh, this week uh, that Katie and I moved to Macon and I began here as pastor at Northway. Uh, This was my first role as a lead pastor. i had served previously as a student pastor, and then for a short period of time as a missionary, uh, working with college students. Uh, Before I came to the church, uh, the church had suffered through a pretty difficult season. And so on day one of my ministry, there were a number of issues, a number of difficulties, a number of problems that had to be addressed. The problem was I had zero experience as a lead pastor mean, um, so all of these things needed a lot of wisdom. They need a lot of experience to fall back on. And I just did not have it. Um, however, in my mind, that was okay. It was all gonna be fine because I knew I could work it out. I could work hard. I could research. I could talk to others. I could watch sermons online. I could read blogs. I could watch courses online. I could figure it out. And the fact that I didn't have any experience Did not matter because in my mind, at the end of the day, I would make sure that everything worked out. It was how I had operated in my ministry. Whenever I faced a problem, whenever I faced some difficulty, if I just worked hard enough, I knew that whatever needed to happen, I could make happen because I could work at it. After about a year, it didn't work. It wasn't working. I was crashing and burning internally. Now, externally, everything was okay, we were managing, it wasn't like the whole operation was falling apart, but internally, I felt myself absolutely dying. And I I wasn't sure what to do. It was one of the lowest points of my life, and I believe the lowest point of my ministry. And I was in a state where I thought, I'm not sure what to do next. A friend of mine was on our elder board at the time, Keith Holmes, he was still in our church, and Keith said, hey, I am reading this book that I think you might really enjoy. It's by Francis Chan. It had just come out. It's called Crazy Love. I think, it's, I think it's a book that you'll like to read. So I said, sure. I grabbed it. I started reading the book. And I got to chapter nine of that book. And here's what I read. He wrote, I wrote this book because much of our talk doesn't match our lives. We say things like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me and trust in the Lord with all your heart. Then we live and plan like we don't believe God even exists. We try to set up our lives so everything will be fine even if God doesn't come through. But true faith means holding nothing back. It means putting every hope in God's fidelity to his promises. I read that paragraph and I realized that was me. That was absolutely where I was. I wasn't trusting in the Lord with all my heart. I was trusting in me with all my heart. I wasn't doing all things through Christ who strengthens me. I was doing all things through me who strengthens me. I had to stop right there at that point and pray a prayer of repentance and just say, God, I am so sorry. I am so sorry for my arrogance. I am so sorry for thinking that I am in control, that I have this illusion that somehow I can make it happen. Now, I don't know if a lot changed externally at that point, but it changed in me. It was a huge defining moment in my life, coming to the end of me and realizing that I had to depend on God. Now I've had a lot of times since where I've tried to take that back and I've had to repent and repent again of that. And I imagine that many of you in here could say the exact same thing. I mean, that you've had a very similar moment. And if you're a follower of Christ, I know you've had this moment because following Christ is exactly that. It is coming to the point in your life where you say, I can't do life on my own anymore. I've been driving this car and I'm a bad driver. I've been trying to work everything out on my own and it's not working out. And and God, I need you to take over. And so I'm following Christ, asking him to be Lord because I make a horrible Lord of my life. When you become a follower of Christ, that is coming to this moment. However, my guess is like I did and many of you likely have done as well. You've had these moments where you go, you know what, I think I wanna take it back for a little while. You know, God, hey, thank you so much for all that you've done for me, and I really appreciate you driving, but if you don't mind, if you could just slide over to that passenger seat for a moment, I think I'd like to take the wheel. You know, I appreciate you sitting on the throne of my life, but if you could just slide over, I'd like to retake that seat on the throne of my life. God, thanks for being here. You've done a lot of good stuff, but I, I need to get back into control for a while. The passage that Stephen read earlier from the book of Colossians is exactly what we need to hear. It addresses that very mindset. If you were here with us last week, you know that Paul wrote this letter to the church in uh, in Colossae because this false teaching had invaded the church that said something like this. Yeah, you need Jesus. Jesus gets your foot in the door. But after that, it's up to you. And you better do a lot of driving and you better make up the gap that exists between what Jesus does for you and what you really need to find salvation or to be righteous or to be fulfilled in life. And there are all these things you need to do. There are rituals you need to follow. There are certain regulations that you better follow. There are all sorts of rules. And there are even these visions and these secret truths that you need to learn. And if you can do all of that then maybe you'll be okay. Maybe you'll be accepted by God. Paul wrote this letter to say to those, in, those Christians in Colossae, look, it's not Jesus plus all these other things. It's just Jesus. He is more than enough. And this particular passage that Stephen read Paul zeroes in on these four truths as to why Jesus is enough, why you and I don't ever need to say, hey, Jesus, you've done fine, but I'm gonna take back the wheel for a while because I don't think you've quite got it. I don't think you're handling, handling the situation like it needs to be handled. If you've got your message map with you, this is on your message map. Paul talks about four characteristics, characteristics of Christ that make him more than enough. In Jesus, I find more than enough truth. Look at verse 6. Paul wrote, So then, just as you received Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Paul begins this section by, Just as you received Christ as Lord. That, by definition, means that if you've received Christ as Lord, you've rejected all other gods as gods. You've accepted Christ as the Lord of your life, rejecting yourself as a God and all other gods as well. Now, we would say, of course, like logically, by default, if you become a follower of Christ, that means that you're rejecting Allah as God or Zeus as God or Hindu gods as God, whoever as God, you're following Christ. However, in that day in the Roman empire, it was very normal to have a primary God that you worshiped and followed, but then to also worship other gods as well. This was especially seen in what was called imperial worship. The Romans believed that their emperors were gods or became gods upon death. And so in every major Roman city, there would be a temple dedicated to imperial worship. And you were expected as a Roman citizen or just a resident of that city, even if you were not a Roman citizen, to go to the temple and to worship the Roman emperors as your patriotic duty. If you did not, it was seen as being unpatriotic. The early Christians in the Roman Empire got in trouble because they refused to go and to worship the emperors. Paul here says, that's what it means when you become a follower of Christ. You have accepted him as Lord to the rejection of all other gods. And then he says, "You've you've received Christ as Lord. Just as you've done that, continue to live your lives in him. Rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith. Here's what Paul is saying. When you become a follower of Christ, that's not a one and done, you check the box and you move on and you forget about that experience. I think so often in our culture, we treat becoming a follower of Christ sort of like you treat that social studies final. The one that you have to study for and remember all the dates and all the battles and all the general's names and all the nations, and who fought who, when, and the treaties, and all these different facts, and you gotta commit it all to memory, and then you take the final, and you walk out of the final, and what do you do? Forget it all. It's gone, I'm done. Now I can go fill my mind with Instagram, whatever, or TikTok videos, or whatever I wanna do, because now I've done it, it's over, I don't ever have to think about that again. And Paul here says no. No, when you become a follower of Christ, that is something that is a daily thing in your life that you continue in him, rooted in your faith. Years ago when I was in seminary, I had the chance to interview uh, Jimmy Waters. If you're not familiar with that name, Jimmy Waters was a long time pastor here in the middle Georgia area. He actually has children and grandchildren and great grandchildren in this church. Uh, He pastored Mabel White for years. It was at the time the largest church in the middle Georgia area. Uh, By the time I was in seminary, he had retired. And for a class, I had to write a paper um, based on some questions of a uh, long-serving pastor. And so I called him and said, hey, I've got to write this paper for this class. Can I come and interview you? Absolutely, would love to do that. Went to his house. We sat down for a couple of hours and I asked him just a long list of questions. Tell me about sermon preparation. Tell me about the hardest thing you've ever faced. Tell me about when your church was growing and what you did. Tell me about hiring staff. Tell me about all these things that you did. And I got to this point and I said, tell me about the things that hurt you the most in ministry. And he thought for a moment, he said, I'm gonna tell you one of the things that really hurt. He said, we had a large church. We'd have 1600, 1700 on Sunday morning." He said, the problem was we had over 3,000 people on our roll. And he said, many of them never came. In fact, he made this funny remark, I'll I'll never forget. He said, he was convinced that the FBI and the post office together could not find over 500 of them. (laughs) Meaning, they came to church at some point, they said, I've accepted Christ They were baptized, their name was put on the roll, and then they were never seen or heard from again. And he said it broke his heart to think about these people who thought all they had to do to get their ticket to heaven punched was to make this decision and then walk away and never have to think about it again. And it absolutely broke his heart. Paul here says, no, no, no. Continue in this faith. It's a daily thing. And then he ends this section by saying, look, just as you receive Christ as Lord and you're continuing in your faith, this should result in an overflowing thankfulness. Paul here paints this picture and says someone who is a follower of Christ will naturally exhibit thankfulness in their lives. It's like a tree that is a healthy tree and you look at the tree and you see that it is full of green leaves. Those green leaves are the outward symbol of the health of the tree that has strong roots, that has a strong trunk, that has strong branches. The tree tells you about what's going on underneath the ground. I mean, the leaves tell you about what's going on underneath the ground in that tree's life. And that's what Paul here says about thankfulness. Someone who is never thankful has a problem with their relationship with God. That thankfulness should flow out of the life of a Christian. Then he continues in verse 8 and gets to this main idea about truth. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. Now this tells us that those in Colossae had not bought into this false teaching. Paul here is raising a yellow flag. He's not raising a red flag saying, hey, you guys have have bought into this teaching and you're believing these lies. He just says, hey, you need to be aware. There are those who are trying to take you captive with this false teaching. So be on the lookout Be aware of this and understand that it is hollow and deceptive and that it depends on human tradition. In that day, Greek philosophy that had been around for centuries was part of the human tradition. And if someone was struggling in their relationship with Christ or if they were questioning certain truths, they might be tempted to go back to these old traditions, to these Greek philosophies. And Paul here says, wait a second. Those philosophies depend on elemental spiritual forces. They depend on human tradition. They are not grounded in the truths of the gospel. We have right the opposite problem in our day. They want to go back to the past. We want the new ideas, whatever those are. You know, if we're struggling and somebody has some kind of new, shiny, exciting idea that we see, we go, oh yeah, we'd like to buy into that. Actually, what, what we forget is most of the time those new ideas are just the old ideas repackaged into a 2.0, and they've failed before, but somehow now we think they won't fail. Paul says, look, if it contradicts the truth of the gospel, then here's what you need to understand. It will trick you, it is deceptive, and it is hollow. At the end of the day, it will leave you feeling empty. The first reason that, that Jesus is more than enough is because in him we find truth. The second reason is that Jesus is more than enough is in him we find more than enough fullness. Look at verse nine. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. So last week, we talked about the fact that when Jesus Christ came into the world physically 2,000 years ago, he came into a world that he created. That Jesus Christ never gave up his godness. The fullness of God lives in Christ. And Paul here says, When you then are in Christ, you get the fullness of God in you. Outside of Christ, there is a severe emptiness. Outside of Christ, there is this this severe hollowness. But in Christ, you are 100% filled. Paul had this great way of reading his audience, of understanding their needs, of how to preach what to whom. Paul, when he wrote to the church at Corinth, he knew that the Corinthian Christians were very arrogant. They believed that they had it all figured out. They thought, I don't need Paul. I don't need anybody else. We've got it going on. We are super Christians. So Paul writes to those in Corinth and he says, your problem is you're full of yourself instead of Christ. Your problem is that pride that's so ugly has crept up in you and you need to get rid of that. The opposite issue is going on in the Colossian church. In the Colossian church, they had bought into the lie that they were less than because they didn't have all of these spiritual truths or these visions. They had not seen angels. They were not following these special rituals. They thought somehow they were lacking what they needed to truly follow Christ. And Paul here says, no, in Christ, you are filled 100%. You lack nothing. Then he goes on to say, he is the head of, over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self was ruled by the flesh, was, your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Have you been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead?" So Paul here says to those in in Colossae, what God did in you was a spiritual circumcision. For the Jews, circumcision was a physical sign that was a powerful symbol. It carried a lot of weight. It meant you're a part of the family of God. And Paul here says, God has done that in your life by doing it in your heart, spiritually speaking. So that when you were baptized, when you were baptized, you were baptized into Christ and then raised to walk in this new life. It was the end of you, the end of your old ways, and now you're a new creation in Christ. And understand this was not done by human hands. This whole circumcision thing was not just this outward symbol, but rather it was a circumcision of the heart. Uh, Again, I think this passage speaks to two different groups today. One group says, just like we talked about earlier, I was raised in the church. I was, I was born in the church. My, my mama and daddy took me to church. And when I went to VBS, I accepted Christ and I was baptized. And I was, I was in the youth group. And then I left and went away and I haven't really gone back to church, but I'm good because I had that event and I was baptized. And that, that outward symbol happened in my life. So I'm good to go. And Paul here says, no, unless it is a circumcision of the heart, then it, then it means nothing. You were baptized, congratulations. If there was no heart change, you just got wet. You went for a quick swim and that was it. The other group that Paul addresses here are those who say, I, I didn't grow up in the church. I, you know, I, I, I've really run away from the Lord for a long time. I mean, I've done a lot of things that are wrong. And and I don't know the Christian language. I don't feel like I'm part of the family. You know, am I really accepted? And Paul here says, absolutely. Because what God does in your heart when you become a follower of Christ is all that you need. And the traditions and the background and all of that, that's great if you've got it. But what God does in your heart is what it takes to find salvation. And it is more than enough. So Paul says we're filled in Christ. Number three, in Jesus, I find more than enough forgiveness. Absolutely more than enough forgiveness. Look at verse 13. Paul wrote, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. Notice what he says here, when you were dead in your sins, when you were completely spiritually dead, when you became a follower of Christ, you were made completely alive through the forgiveness of your sins. There is this very dangerous teaching that is prevalent in many American churches today. Uh, The... Uh, movement is called the progressive Christian movement. Sometimes it's referred to as the emergent church. Um, And in that particular movement, in those particular churches, and it's hard to say this about all of them because it's hard to cover every single one of them, but generally speaking, they would say the reason that Jesus came was to be a good example to us. The reason that Jesus came to earth was to show us a better way to live. This past week, I started Googling uh, some of these questions in the progressive Christian movement. How do you define salvation? Um, you know, what does it mean to be saved? I came across one, this is a blog uh, that is called the Progressive Christian Blog. Uh, and here's what the author wrote. So I asked, what is salvation? Here's the answer. Salvation is moving people from preoccupation and anxiety to presence and compassion. Salvation is about the individual transforming and also the transformation of the world, transformation from a world justice to a world of justice, transformation from a world of war to a world of peace. Okay, first of all, it's a little bit of a word salad. You just throw a lot of words on the page and assume that people understand it, I guess. I'm not sure exactly. Uh, It's like some politicians I know, just throw a bunch of words out there and people think you know what you're talking about. The second thing is, I think what this author is saying is that salvation is about us changing our behavior. That's not it at all. So then I had to Google some more and ask some more questions and I asked, well, why did Jesus come according to progressive Christianity? Here was another answer I found from another blog. It said, Jesus came to earth to convey that God seeks to empower us by knowing that God is merciful and forgiving so we can be constantly encouraged to shun evil and do good. It was this message, it was this message that Jesus was willing to die for rather than save himself in hopes to inspire following in his footsteps through expressions of radical love. Now, to this author's credit, he does give a little more clarity in his language and says very clearly the reason that Jesus came was to be an example and the reason that Jesus died on the cross was to inspire his followers to follow his example, that if he went to the cross and he died on the cross, that that would inspire him to continue his message of radically loving one another. Now, I don't doubt that Jesus was a great example, the prime example, the best example. We all will do well to follow the example of Christ except that's not why he came and died on the cross. He died on the cross for our sins. And the New Testament is crystal clear about that. That we were dead in our sins, and that in Christ we find life. That we were separated from God, that we were enemies of God, and in Christ we find full acceptance and forgiveness um, by God. That this idea that, well, He's just a good example to follow, and that humans just need a little bit of tweaking, and that if we can just somehow modify our behavior, will be accepted by God is a dangerous teaching and it is a hundred and eighty degrees from what the church has taught traditionally over the last two thousand years. Paul here says that in Christ we were made alive. Let me go back to this verse. Then he says, he forgave us all of our sins Again, why did Christ die? To forgive us of our sins, having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. And he has taken that away by nailing it to the cross. That phrase, the charge of legal indebtedness, is literally the handwriting of decrees. The handwriting of decrees against us because of our sins. You can picture this like a financial document or you can picture this like a legal document. If you signed a mortgage uh, or taken out a mortgage recently, you know that you go to the bank and the lawyer and you sign 500 pages of documents for that mortgage. That is a legal document that you owe this money. If you fail to pay that money, they get out more legal documents that, that mean other things for you financially or you know, legally, criminally. And that day, it was the same way. If you failed to pay back the debt that was owed, you might go to jail. Have your wages garnished. Paul here says that spiritually, there was a long list of a handwriting of decrees against us. And outside of Christ, for days and days, someone could read all of the debt that we have to God. Then in Christ... God took all of that and he nailed it to the cross. And over that document, he wrote in the blood of Christ, paid in full so that you no longer owe that debt. It has been canceled by being nailed to the cross. Here's what that means. In Christ, you are 100% forgiven. There's no asterisk beside that. There's nothing else. You have to add to it. There's no rituals or rules you have to follow. Special ceremony that you have to go through in Christ. Every sin you've ever committed, nailed to the cross, paid in full. Paul here says, look, in Christ, you're fully forgiven. Jesus is more than enough. And here's the last thing. In Jesus, I find more than enough power. Look at verse 15. Verse 15, by the way, is my favorite verse, not just in this passage, but in the book of Colossians. Um, So if you've got a paper Bible with you and you don't mind writing in your Bible, circle verse 15 and then out to the side, write Pastor Kevin's favorite verse in Colossians. Not favorite verse ever, but in Colossians. Here's what Paul wrote. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing triumphing over them by the cross. Paul paints this picture here that we miss a little bit because we do not live in a culture where they practice crucifixion, thank God. Paul here paints a picture of the crucifixion as practiced by the Romans. When the Romans crucified a criminal, they had three goals. Number one, kill the person. And crucifixion always worked. It worked very well. Number two, kill them in as painful a way as possible. And so stretch it out as long as possible. Make the torture as awful as it can be. Jesus hung on the cross for six hours, but that wasn't all of the torture involved in the crucifixion. He was flogged before that, made to carry the cross before that. It was hours and hours of torture, Some were on the cross longer than Jesus. It it was by design meant to be a long, slow, torturous, painful death. So kill the person, kill them slowly and painfully, and number three, to make a public spectacle of them. Crucifixions were always done in public. We know that Jesus was crucified on a hill so everyone could see the crucifixion. And people that walked by would look at the criminal, would look at the condemned and say, that is a public spectacle. And that's exactly what Rome wanted. They wanted people to see the crucifixion and to say, I don't want that to ever happen to me. Whatever got that person on that cross, I will never do what they did because I don't want that to happen to me. That's what Rome wanted. And so they made it as public as possible. Here's what Paul was saying. Such an incredible picture. That day as Jesus hung on the cross, Jews and Romans walked by and they said, oh, look, public spectacle. But Paul says, if you somehow in that moment, if you could have pulled back the divide between heaven and earth and looked up into the heavens, you would have seen that instead of Jesus being made a public spectacle of, it was sin and the power of sin that was being thoroughly embarrassed in that moment. And all that power being taken away and the power of sin and death over all who are in Christ was being made a public spectacle spectacle of in that moment. The sec- that's the first word picture. The second word picture he paints here is of a Roman army coming back from battle. Whenever they would go, when they would defeat an enemy, they would come back into a city and you would see the general leading and you would see the hires in, uh, higher ups in command behind the general. And then you would see the soldiers coming. And then at the end of the procession, there would be the defeated um, enemies of Rome and they would be bound and they would drag them or the defeated king and they would come along and they would come to the city and it would be this parade. They had triumphed over the enemy. How incredible. Yay. And there would be all this cheering. The least triumphal march in ancient Rome was the march of the condemned carrying his cross In no way did anyone confuse that with a military parade. Anyone who looked at the march of a person with a cross said, that is utter defeat. Paul here says, once again, no, but if you could have pulled back the divide between heaven and earth, you would have seen that in fact, that was God triumphing over sin and evil. Winning the battle over death. Both of these word pictures Paul paints in this one verse to say that day 2,000 years ago on a hill that we call Calvary looked like defeat for God. It looked like defeat for Jesus. It looked like evil had won. But when Jesus Christ came out of the tomb three days later, the picture became much clearer. And that in fact, sin was defeated and evil was defeated and death was defeated. And in Christ, you've been given all of that power. We still sin, we still blow it, but in Christ, guess what? You don't have to because you've got the power to defeat that sin. You've got the power to overcome whatever it is that is plaguing you. Why? Because in Christ, you have more than enough. Power in your life to win the battle against sin. Here's what Paul says in this passage. He says, look, in Christ, you have more than enough. You have more than enough forgiveness. In the person of Christ, you have more than enough truth. There is no other truth that competes with the truth of Christ. In Christ, you are filled completely. You do not need any extra filling. You're good in Christ and in Christ alone. And then finally he says, you have more than enough power to overcome the sins that rage against our flesh. You've got more than enough power. Paul here is very clear. It's not Jesus plus anything else. It's just Jesus. He's more than enough.